Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Jim Booth is the chief operating officer of Spiro, a company that creates high-tech robots encouraging learning through play, where he currently oversees operations, sales, marketing, and business development areas. Prior to Spiro, Jim's entrepreneurial experience includes Rally Software and three early-stage startups in operations, business development, and founder roles. He began his corporate career at FedEx as an engineer and manager of strategic alliances during pivotal growth years for the company. Jim is still an active mentor to companies in Techstars, Patriot Bootcamp, and other startups. He's a 1990 graduate of the U.S. Military Academy and served as an Army officer during combat operations in the Middle East. Outside of Spiro, Jim loves to travel with his family and enjoys cheering for his kids at their sporting events. So, Jim, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. Where were you over in the Middle East? I graduated from West Point uh, right after graduation. Uh, Gulf War One was kind of just starting off. And uh, after I got out of my officer training, I met my first unit in Saudi Arabia when we were like in the defense. Wow. Uh, and then... You know, we transitioned to you know the offense and yeah kind of conducting the war so yeah i was over there i was backpacking i guess i was a couple of years older than you i was backpacking and in uh i just left egypt or i was in egypt in the sinai and um i guess i was moving over into israel and the war was just ending it was kind of like april of 91 and yeah. uh, one of the one of the U.S. boats came in, and I sat and partied with all the guys, and just <laughs> they were they were just so glad it was over. And and I also remember like they were so young. Yeah, yeah. And I wasn't that old. I was only twenty five, yeah. but they all seemed young to me. Yeah, it's something you realize about um, you know sort of the business of war, so to speak, is that our very best, our youngest and brightest, um, are there. And I remember uh, when I was at West. You have all these professors that have fought in all these different wars, Vietnam, and um, one of my professors said, hey, you know, I know you're going to get an engineering degree, but you might want to think about um, figuring out the Middle East. And um, so I got a minor in Middle Eastern history because I was like, you know, it's going to be, this will serve me well on the ground, knowing the difference between a Sunni and a Shia, Shia. uh, sort of the, the fundamental problems in the Middle East, so. Interesting. So I'm really curious. I talked to someone the other day at a, um, a dinner party who'd worked, who's been in the military and is now in operations at the company. And he seemed to pull, pull some skills from that. I was super impressed. What did you pull from your time there that you still would use today? Yeah, there's a whole number of skills that you can kind of pull from the military. I think first is that, you know, there's an incredible amount of leadership that happens, you know, under duress, right? And you need to be able to, um, you know, plan and be flexible all this kind of um, are very much in play in, in the startup world. Um, what, what's also in play is that if you have a solid plan, you have something to deviate from. And, and then if you've got a great team, you can kind of carve off pieces of your, uh, your business, so to speak. And in war, it's, you have different units and stuff and, and let them run businesses within businesses. Um, and, I always remember, I mean, at one point you kind of study the history of warfare from the beginning of time. And um, you kind of learn like, you know, the old Soviet 
um, kind of command and control model of warfare did, doesn't work in practical mm. practicality. So, um, you know, when we were training, you trained for the fact that, you know, you'd lose your leadership and, and the best, you know, statement of you as a leader was that, you know, that, uh, um, the unit would move on, conduct its mission and be successful. I think the same thing holds true in sort of the startup world and, and business in general is if you've got a great team, um, you know, you carve out pieces of the business, give them a lot of flexibility, um, give them a lot of um, discretion and, and let them, you know, you've you given them guidance and train them and stuff and let them go run the business. And um, so, I mean, that's, a I think, a pretty broad thing. There are other, um, you know, sort of really executional things you learn. Um, but, uh, you know, when you, uh, when you compare startups to sort of uh, being a warrior, if you get things wrong in uh, warfare, you know, people die and it's, you know, mm. that's the ultimate. Uh, if you get it wrong in, in, in business, you know, the companies um, go under and, you know, people are affected by that. And so um, I think there's, there's a host of, um, of really good entrepreneurs that are, you know, former, former vets. There's a great program through Techstars. Um, that they run, um, and they, you know, it's it's a it's an incredible way to pull off the races and you know after their careers in the military. So that's cool. Um, so tell us a little bit about Spiro, what you're running today. Yeah, so Spiro, um, I mean, you did an intro on it. We're completely focused on sort of inspiring the creators of tomorrow uh, through different STEAM and STEM, um, you know, type things. We um, sell inside of schools and we also sell, uh, you know, to, to teachers and kids. Um, we also sell in retail to parents. So we say whether it's in the classroom or the living room, um, if, uh, if we want to expose kids to sort of the, you know, the 21st, learn, uh, 21st century learning skills, um, we do it across the board. We do it through, um, you know, exposing kids to, to coding and different STEAM and STEM topics through, um, our serial robots, as well as uh, now we just acquired um, Little Bits uh, product as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I always tell people that, um, you know, we want to be the company that helps kids sort of fall in love with learning again. Um, That's there's cool. a certain type of learning that happens in schools. Um, and, you know, we have teachers come to us and say, hey, what could we do differently? And, you know, I just say, you know, just realize what you have in each of your kids and give them that slight touch that they need in the right way. Um, so whether it's a serial product that's getting kids excited about the ability to code and, um, and problem solve or someone else's, I'm just excited to see that transformation and sort of mm. what I call project-based learning in the classroom. That's cool. Yeah. So I, I've been going to the main TED conference for around nine or 10 years now. And every year at TED, we keep seeing more and more of this kind of, um, the STEM products for kids. And it seems to be that they're trying to get the whole TED community engaged in that as well. Is there a, a core strategy that you have in getting your products or your ideas out to the market right now? Yeah, there are. I mean, first on the education <laughs> side, um, teachers are absolutely incredible and in looking for ways to um, teach course concepts in different ways and get away from sort of the rote memorization and, and bring um, like really fun activities. So I would say that first and foremost, um, 
you know, teachers and kids are our focus inside of education. And then similarly, inside the home, it's about parents and kids. Um, you know, I grew up in New York as a kid, and my mom was a seamstress, and my dad was a, a plumber, and you know, money was, was kind of tight sometimes. And, um, you know, they, would, they were always hesitant to buy me something that was a toy, but if they were buying me something that combined, um, you know, learning together with play, they would do it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I remember, you know, kind of begging to, to get certain things. And that, that was like the screen for my parents that like, you know, we could, we can definitely throw around the footballs and stuff, but if they were going to spend some money, they wanted to see that it sort of furthered us in some, in, in some way. That's really cool. So we're seeing that happen. So our focus area is certainly parents and kids and teachers and, and kids as well. But, uh, I'm just kind of blown away by, um, you know, the, the teachers that we see that are out there. Um, you know, there's all kinds of issues, you know, with, uh, education and, um, but when you take a step back and you look at that fundamental core of just like incredible teachers, it's just, uh, we got a lot to be thankful for. Yeah, we do. We've got a much better base than we give credit for. I think the administration and the bureaucracy in the school system is the problem, not the teachers. Tell me about um, how you got involved in Sphero. So um, I was uh, at Rally at the time and, um, you know, I was a strong supporter of the Techstars sort of ecosystem that was happening in Boulder. At the time, Techstars was really focused in Boulder and they were kind of proving out, um, you know, the model here. And um, myself and our CEO, Paul Babarian, and one of our lead investors, Brad Feld, were mentors to our two technical co-founders in Techstars. And um, we were just really fascinated by what they were doing. They had a really broad thesis that, hey, we carry, and this is back in 2010, we carry these super powerful things in our hands, and we don't control physical things in the everyday world. And um, they were like starting up their motorcycles, opening up you know, garage doors and doing all these, um, utility things, which were awesome. Um, but when we interviewed them, we kind of found out that they were, uh, both robotics guys, both gaming guys. And we said, Hey, go, go pursue something that, um, you, you love to do and that you're really passionate about. And so, um, that's how I got involved with zero early on. Um, when we coached them through sort of the Techstars program afterwards, we joined um, Paul and I, um, you know, and we sort of made a good, you know, technical and business team together. Um, and the company really had, um, you know, I'd say like a, you know, a lot of companies have to have that, you know, that impetus, that perfect storm event. And for us, um, we took, uh, through our sort of robotic ball prototype to CES and um, we had a perfect storm of interest from consumers and press and, and buyers. We just kind of got swarmed at the event because people were really just fascinated by the fact that you could um, you make this whole notion of connected play and mm. learning come to life. So, um, yes, yeah, so that's a little bit of our Genesis story, but um, uh, now you you know, been there, you've been there a long time. You've been there almost nine years. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what part of the business business do you run today and what part do the, the founders run? How did, how did you guys split that up or what's the org look like? 
Yeah, I mean, we've, um, you know, I say businesses go through kind of multiple summits and, um, but our founders, one of our founders spun off uh, Ian Bernstein to start a company named Misty Robotics. Uh, Misty is all about kind of um, uh, creating a robot um, that allows developers the, uh, you know, the opportunity to do just like credible things with uh, like a home-based robot or, you know, robot around the office. And Ian is off. Um, with an incredible CEO sort of getting that business off the ground right now. Um, Adam has stayed with us. Um, and he stayed with us kind of in the role of, um, you know, he's worked on a lot of product for us. So some of our most amazing product that we have has been kind of inspired by Adam. Um, you know, Paul and I as CEO and COO, I always tell people that there's a, you know, there are so many different CEO, COO dynamics. Um, but initially, Paul and I were like, hey, let's split the business in half. Paul focused heavily on product. He's a great sort of product CEO. Uh, CEO. And I focused on sales, BD, marketing. Um, so it was like one of those divide and conquer mm-hmm. um, type of relationships. Um, you know, uh, that I, I think has been it was great for us early on and we've, we've sort of morphed over the years of me handling different things. And, uh, you know, as you build a team, you, you end up, um, you know, leaning on people to help you grow the business and you know, beyond you. Well, you've, you've talked about a couple of things. One, before we hopped on the show, you talked about an article that you read years ago called give up my Legos, which was kind of about, you, you mentioned this team building kind of a Lego structure together and then all of a sudden to keep building you had to get different people to take different sections and keep building to give up your sections of legos and in the military you talked about the same thing that you had to give up areas and let people start to run those so how have you over the years given that stuff up how have you decided to i guess start working on the critical few things or build your teams can you walk us through some of the the nine years yeah sure um give up your legos is a great article uh, everyone should just Google it and check it out. I, I, uh, you know, we share it with our team pretty regularly. There are a number of you know, articles we all sort of have in our arsenal, but the, you know, the thesis there is that, you know, if you're a successful startup, you know, sort of you're building a Lego set that if valued, um, you then end up breaking up pieces of it. Um, you know, I think if you look at zero early on, um, I just handled, you know, everything from, um, you know, legal to people to, um, and as you get to a certain size, you realize like, Hey, I need to have sort of subject matter experts, uh, to bring into the company. And the way I sort of eased into those and find folks to help us grow our businesses is that first you do them on your own. So you get to know kind of like what's required and, um, and, uh, then as you grow a bit, you end up, uh, at least for me, I ended up like tapping into external resources. So I'll use like legal as an example. You know, initially, you know, we use things that were, um, you know, canned templates and things like that. Um, then as things got a little bit more sophisticated, you know, we used outside counsel. Um, mm. And then based on the outside counsel, you you start to realize, hey, you know, we need a we need a general counsel inside, um, and you know, you have a relationship with some folks you worked with and you might be able to transition them in the organization. Um, sales is a similar example too, because, you know, you, you end up doing sales and business development on your own. Uh, then you tap into like sometimes 
some really, you know, great seasoned consultants. Uh, I think some of our success in channel has been about finding those people, getting us up the learning curve. Um, you know, we use them in um, manufacturing. There was a great, uh, you know, company that we've used. Um, and similarly in sales, we use some, we got some help there. And then you start to transition those people inside the company. Um, so that's kind of how we've done it over the years. And it's, it served as sort of like a crawl, walk, run for us. Mm. Um, you know, I, I remember interviewing um, like our general counsel and saying like, hey, you know, I think I keep a, a pretty good eye on things that are, um, you know, important to the company from a legal perspective. But I'm kind of a pretty shitty general counsel in general. You know, like I'm not an attorney. And, um, but um you know, she laughed and said, yeah, no, uh, this is kind of a pretty, you know, common trajectory for companies. So that's been my, um, you know, that's my path of how I've managed those kind of things. And it, uh, it gives you sort of a way to sort of ease into them. And then I think, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether you use those consultants and bring them internally or just use them as advisors, um, you know, there have been people that have just gotten us up the learning curve so quickly. Sure. Um, and I, you know, in different areas of your business, just depending on founders' backgrounds, you will or will not need help. Um, so I, I have like a pretty strong um, supply chain and logistics background. When I got out of the military, I worked for FedEx on uh, their supply chain group. So really didn't need help there. Um, but in like uh, manufacturing in China, for instance, um, we leaned on a really incredible partner there that helped us get up the, um, uh, the learning curve super quickly. And I always tell people like they took us through, um, you know, manufacturing in Asia, charm school one oh one, Uh, and they great. stood, in, yeah, they stood in the car with us for a little while. Um, and then eventually you, know, you uh, they got out of the car and we, and we ended up driving it, so to speak. I was kind of curious about that. That how many total employees do you have now, approximately? We're 140 plus right now. Okay, so so real company, real moving parts. How do you decide what parts of the business to continually outsource to not bring in house, and how do you decide you know what parts to bring in house? I think you know you first make the decision of is it core and crucial to the business. You don't want to outsource something uh, that's core and crucial to the business. Um, you know, and and then there, I think there's also like the practical concern of, you know, what is that cost line item to the business? And even if it's not core and crucial, but can we run it much more efficiently and, and uh, you know, at a less, lesser cost? Um, I suppose if it's a pretty big line item, then it's crucial. But, um, you know, we look at things that are pretty big cost and say, hey, we're not going to take those external if we can run them. Um, less costly and more efficiently internally. Mm -hmm. So um, strategic is one filter for me. The other is cost. Um, and I think uh, those are the two primary ones for me. So something I've always struggled with was as an organization grows and scales and you start building the people underneath you to run different business areas, is I'm good at giving up control and letting them run those areas, but I almost abdicate versus you know, inspect what you expect. Um, yeah. I sometimes give them way too much rope or 
let them run yeah. for far too long. How do you oversee stuff as you're giving up your Legos, as you're giving up those little chunks of the business or big chunks? How do you, what yeah. controls do you have in place? What oversights do you have? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that, uh, you know, startups in general are good places to be delegatory versus directive, right? So I think it starts in the hiring process that, you know, for us, we hire people that are comfortable in ambiguity, have run businesses, want the ability to, um, you know, and freedom to, uh, you know, just give them the broad guidance and then they can go out and execute. Um, so, uh, but even still, you know, you, you kind of oscillate between, hey, can I just delegate that entirely because, you know, someone's just absolutely incredible um, to, you know, there's an area where, uh, they, they may need some development and you're going to, you're going to kind of dial in and be able to help them. So for us, um, you know, it starts with the hiring process. And I think then as you get people into the business and realize what their strengths, um, you know, in developmental areas are, then, you know, if they have a developmental area, you, you know, you can use people around the business to, to help mentor them. Um, I think the other area is that, um, you know, if you have a really tight, um, you know, sort of leadership team, people will naturally work together and help each other out. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, our business leaders on the, um, you know, the sales side tend to have a lot of input into, um, you know, marketing and field marketing. Um, so we've just got a number of checks and balances in place that if somebody is, you know, getting a little bit off, um, you know, task and needs some help, the people can kind of jump in and help each other out. How do you nurture that style of a leadership team so that they are working with and, and helping each other's areas and concerned about each other's areas without having the silos happen? Yeah, I think it starts with trust and, and actually people working together. Um, you know, the whole trust side of thing is built, um, you know, I think through leaders working together every day, rolling up their sleeves and problem solving together. Um, so it's amazing to see when you've got sales, marketing, ops all working together to, to do a great job for a particular client. Those wins really help each other build the trust. And um, so I think we focus on those uh, areas and it's, it's kind of been um, the things that we really think think through and, and focus on. So, and does that start in the hiring process then, or is that just something that you nurture ongoing that trust? It's, it's both. Um, you know, we do a fair amount of, um, so among the leadership team, we meet regularly. Um, so like, you know, we're, we're driving to what we call, uh, rocks for the company overall. We use a, uh, you may be familiar with that. We use a rock process here to strategic plan and, yep. Um, you know, it's, I think everyone sort of, you know, drives off of a similar, you know, whether it's the Google process ours or, or others, but it starts around getting like a, a, a commitment to what are our, you know, what's the overall strategic goal and what pieces do people own and work together on. So you, not only are you working together every day, but you're taking a, a step back quarterly and annually to do, you know, planning together. Um, so you know, we have that process in place to, to help guide things along and bring people together. Um, you know, we're just coming off of our, um, you know, our, we're doing sort of Q4 slash Q1 planning. And, um, 
you know, once you get down the cadence of that, people realize like, hey, this is our time to work on the business, not in the business. Mm. Um, and it, uh, I think it helps people out a lot um, and it builds that trust. And so it's hiring plus, you know, um, how we kind of run the company and work together as a team. What, what are your, your leadership team meetings like? What, you know, do you have like a weekly meeting? Do you have business area review meetings? Do you walk us through some of the different meetings that your leadership teams use to scale the company? Yeah, we're kind of taking a look at things right now because, you know, everyone feels like you, you may have, you may be over meeting. So we're actually experimenting with like a no meeting Wednesday. We're taking uh, stand-ups to uh, do things in Slack, um, trying to get things out of email. But in general, we have a... Um, so we have a core sort of C-level, uh, senior VP-level meeting once a, uh, you know, once a week. Um, what we drive there is um, kind of like what are, the, what are the real big issues that we're trying to solve for? What are our blockers? Um, we have a, a more expanded leadership team meeting. We call our growth meeting that we do each week as well. Um, in there, you know, we tend to guide things around topics so people aren't just updating on like, hey, here's what my week and month looks like. Um, and that's been, that's been pretty effective for us. It's, uh, you know, basically when people walk out of there, they, they have the opportunity to touch everybody in the company. Um, there are a couple other really unique things that we do as a company that are super special. Um, one is we do an all-hands Friday meeting. Um, and that all hands, we bring in, um, we bring in food, and we're covering. Um, we have a, a thing we call board of thanks, which is we're thanking everybody in the company. Um, we're briefing out to the company in total. We do some fun stuff uh, where we give away a chicken. What we call it, it's a Chinese chicken foot. That um, if you've done something super funny, interesting, or uh, or even dumb. Um, we also do this thing because since we came out of a uh, an accelerator, um, basically, you know, either two to three times a year, we do uh, a Sphero product accelerator where um, the company breaks down into teams and they can focus on um, what items they think are really important for us to put on the strategic roadmap for the future. Mm. So it just kind of walk me through that once. So once they, they propose some items that might go on the strategic roadmap, what do you do with them? Yeah. So we actually will uh, meet, take a look at them, prioritize them against sort of criteria for us in, you know, and um, uh, based on that, um, they'll either go on the roadmap. um, They'll go, you know, we'll put them in a parking lot to say, Hey, it's a great idea, but timing's not right. Or we'll actually say that, you know, that's, that just doesn't hit it. And, you know, hit the roadmap. And what we found is, is that, you know, all across the company, people just kind of come up with great ideas. And if you don't have a, a way to, to harness them and act on them, you know, people are going to be frustrated, right? And it's, it's sort of a very nice way of us um, facilitating the power um, of the company overall. And, you know, we've just had some incredible things come out of places um, that you wouldn't expect. And it's just, uh, there is no, um, you know, uh, you know, people come out with just great things that affect our business from any part of the business. So. Well, there's also there's also the flip side of that, which is the you know the entrepreneurial uh, quick start, right? The it's big shiny object yeah. syndrome that early stage entrepreneurs have, which is they want to start every idea tomorrow, and it'll only take three minutes to do. Oh. 
Um, we often need a place to keep their ideas as well to vote on those. And I always green light, yellow light, red light. I'm like, green light is yes, it goes into the plan. Yellow light is yes, but not now. And no, you know, red light is that used to be a great idea. It's off the list. That's a great, yeah, it's sort of a similar process. We, we also do this with, uh, like, we have customers that we'll, we'll be bringing in and, and having them give input to us. So uh, mm. customers, we do a ton of um, work also with uh, just bringing kids in and, and uh, play testing is what we call it. So, are you, Have you guys ever been out to the, um, I wish I could remember the name of the conference. Do you know a guy named Richard Rossi? Sounds familiar, but I can't. Is Richard, it a... Uh, What's Richard runs, he runs a big STEM conference once or twice a year um, back on the East Coast with about 5,000, 6,500 kids that, that go to this. He builds kind of an arena uh, filled with all of these kids that are interested in the STEM areas. That's really cool. I've, um, I'll introduce you to him. He and, I met, he and I met through an organization called um, the Genius Network. And uh, I'll introduce you to Richard. He's been big in that whole space. and Yeah. Might be an interesting, interesting connection for you. And Brad Feld, the reason um, I actually want to talk to you offline about Brad, but he's been talking a lot around the whole bipolar nature of entrepreneurs. And I've done a lot of work in that space too, that I want to connect with him on some stuff, some ideas. Did um, So Brad is on our board and uh, he's you know, been just an incredible supporter of the company over the years. Oh, for sure. And he's, he's, kind of the, he's the face of entrepreneurship in Boulder too, isn't he still? Or well, one of? Entrepreneurship is... Uh, you know, in Boulder is pretty big and Brad yeah. is definitely one of the, you know, the, the forces. But um, the one thing I think even Brad would tell you is that it's, it's all about the community that you foster and, mm. you know, beyond your, 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 you know, sort of your key pillar leaders and stuff. So, um, but, uh, you know, certainly through things like Techstars and, um, <clears throat> you know, talking about how startup communities in general has been super influential. Now is, is Sphero um, all based in Boulder or do you have some teams or some branch offices as well? We've or got a couple offices. Uh, so uh, we now have an office in New York. Uh, we acquired little bits a uh, little bit over a month ago. Um, we have an operation uh, and a team in Hong Kong. Um, so we do product development and sales uh, for Asia there. And then we have a small team uh, based in the UK that also handles uh, UK Europe. So, you know, we're a company that's focused on sales globally from the very beginning. And I think um, it's funny because sometimes I have entrepreneurs come to me and say, hey, you know, we're focused on North America. And once we crack North America, we'll think about the rest of the world. And um, I've even had entrepreneurs say, hey, I'm really pressure testing my, you know, my team to, to, you know, to prove to me that international is – is something that we should pursue. And I've always, you know, kind of said, Hey, I think, um, you know, just revenue wise, uh, and also diversity for your product, the quicker that you can think about your international impact, your total global impact, the better. And if you lead that, uh, you know, as a company and as a management team, you'll, you know, you'll be better off. Um, for us, you know, one of our key partners globally is Apple and, um, that, that you know was really crucial to us developing a you know a whole you know, global mindset. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, it's interesting. Some you know some some you know for a company like us, we have to think about the global market. Where are you continuing to grow and to learn? I mean, you've been you know in your career for a while, but you're still young. Where where are you continuing to grow your skill set? Yeah, you know, I think um, you know one key area is sort of 
you know, just continuing to sharpen the saw as a coach and, um, you know, of the team. And I've been really just spending a bunch of time, um, you know, just learning from others. Um, I just got done reading Jerry Colonna's um, book, Reboot. Um, and, you know, Jerry um, is just an amazing guy. And I think what Reboot does is, is pretty good. It was very, very good, I should say. Um, so I believe in a lot of the principles that sort of Jerry puts out, but I also think that um, there's some great um, leaders that are out ahead that you can kind of talk to. So um, I spend time with, um, you know, sort of other mentors and I, I always tell people like, Hey, give back to the community. There were people that helped us that were in front of us in our, um, you know, our venture portfolio or even just a startup. So you know, I remember reaching out to the guys at Fitbit when we were pretty early on and learning, mm-hmm. you know, they were going through a, a crazy growth cycle um, and lots of other companies. So uh, I like to spend time mentoring with uh, young entrepreneurs um, in tech stars and, you know, other programs, but I also like to spend time with people that are in front of us. And, um, you know, that gets me thinking about, well, what do I need to do differently? Yeah. Uh, And last area is that we just acquired uh, little bits and, you know, that's a significant uh, integration for us. So um, there's a whole group of leaders that have come over from that business that, um, you know, helping us kind of understand how they've been successful. So it's, it's cool that we get to learn. I get to yeah. learn. Too. I'm curious about that. So what, what is happening with that integration? What have you learned? Has there been any kind of big ahas or any assumptions that you had that you got slapped in the face with or that anything that was easier than you might've thought as well? Um, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the I think that the good thing is, is it was an incredible team. I think Gaia and her leadership uh, team was, you know, really strong. So there are folks um, you know, on that team that are just amazing and have, uh, you know, we get to share stories with about this worked for their business and this works for ours. So they're, they're always immediate quick hits and leadership was one of the things. Um, they've got uh, some great products. I think the hard thing for us, you know, not hard, but we have a mutual appreciation for our businesses, but we're, you know, we're both getting to learn each other's businesses and that takes a bit of time. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, we're, you know, we're focused on creators and so are they, and we've known each other for quite some time, but with any, um, you know, uh, acquisition, that's something that, that takes some time. And then there's also just like the nuts and bolts around, um, you know, integrating, you know, the companies in total. So, you know, things like, Hey, we're on that suite there on that suite. That's great. That's, that's a little bit easier. For us. <laughs> yeah. Um, were there, were, were they following the whole scaling up um, Rockefeller habit systems that you guys are using or were they on a different methodology for running their business? They are, they have a really disciplined process. It's more of the uh, EOS. Uh, okay. I'm familiar with the. Yep. And well, yeah. They have done a really good job um, of driving clarity throughout the organization, which kind of takes some of the, you know, Rockefeller, you know, rock process and just gets it a little bit more detailed. Um, I think they've done a really good job too of cutting down on uh, being over meeting and using Slack. And um, so they had a little bit more of a disciplined process around Slack that we're, uh, 
that we like. Uh, it's, so. it's funny. You mentioned, you mentioned meetings a couple of times. I wrote a book two years ago called meetings suck. And it was because people, <laughs> people kept complaining about meetings, but no yeah. one had ever been trained on them. Yeah. And then I started to realize that no employees had ever actually been trained on how to show up and attend them or participate in them either. Yeah. So I, I kind of wrote the book so people would stop complaining about it. And they'd actually learn how to run the darn things in the first place. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, we, we've actually done the same thing to spend, uh, we, you know, we have some lunch and learn topics and that has been a couple, um, we've brought people in to kind of talk through that and get mm. people, uh, into a good spot. What else are you focusing on your lunch and learns? It was, I was just down a retreat the last couple of days and I was thinking about some stuff related to executive learning. What else are you doing in the kind of lunch and learn area? Yeah, there's a whole host of things that we do, uh, through lunch and learn. Some of it is like, Hey, let's share, you know, broader strategy around sales or ops or, our most recent lunch and learn was we were um, we had the folks from Little Bits on our team in New York just kind of walking us through some cool stuff that they do and their demos for product uh, across the whole company. So lunch and learns, um, you know, we, we certainly have structured things that we talk about, but we also leave them unstructured so you know people can you know come in and talk about things like you know the value of diversity on the team and how diverse teams beat you know. Um, teams that are not diverse every time and um, that that was like a, a really good um, you know, mm. topic for us um, we talk sometimes you know uh, technical engineering type topics kind of come in and people can um, take a look at them so we leave them pretty broad we of course handle um, you know all the what I would call company sort of you know people related topics that are important you have to do um, but uh, we've left them open and been really pleasantly surprised about all the, you know, the, the great things that kind of come through there. That's cool. Yeah, we just had a woman, uh, Barbara Nay, who's a, a gender um, diversity, uh, I guess, a global expert, really. She's worked with some of the biggest brands and some politicians and like big, big, big organizations. Um, we had her come and speak at our last COO Alliance event. We run a, a network for just second in commands. There's no entrepreneurs allowed in the room. And um, some of the insights that she gave us on gender diversity and what was really happening inside of workplaces was pretty fascinating stuff. I think it opens people's eyes up and sort of really blows your hair back. Um, there's a really powerful video that um, is kind of out. Uh, this is just one example of you know, how you know, people become more aware of things. And they talk to young, uh, uh, young girls in school and they ask them, can they name an inventor? And these girls will go through and they'll name Thomas Edison, Tesla, and they'll just go through mm -hmm. and um, they can't name a female inventor. That's sad. And then they tell them all of these incredible inventions that have come from women and uh, they go back to the girls and the girls are like, you know, um, no, one's, no one's ever taught us this. We're really proud of the heritage of, of women inventors and um, – I showed it to my daughter around the time that there was an MIT student who wrote the algorithm that had found, I think there's like a you know, new version of the black hole someplace. And, um, and my, my daughter was just really moved by it. Hmm. She took a step back and was, you know, I would, I would have been one of those girls on this video. And so you, know, you look at that and you go, um, you know, how can we just, you know, broaden people's thinking around diversity and, um, and how important it is. Um, 
a little bit, uh, you know, and I in particular as uh, the founder of it has just been an incredible activist for, hey, let's expose more girls to technology and more, you know, more women to, you know, the possibilities of STEAM careers. Well, and you guys are going through a transition as well with, with doing an acquisition of a completely different company and culture, that's going to, going to force some change in a great way. And then also having offices in China and offices in, in New York and offices in Boulder, like three completely different markets as well, that I think globally companies are really having to radically change the way that we operate and the way that we think. Yeah, you're right. I think mean, each of the offices have their own individual culture, but then there's a shared culture piece mm-hmm. between them all. Um, and it's just fun to see, um, you know, uh, I, I grew up in New York, but now live in Boulder. So I kind of can, you know, understand and live in both of those worlds. Um, you know, it's, it's fun to see, um, you know, the New York team just have different things that they do that um, are really special to them that, uh, you know, we're picking up on and bringing into our office. And likewise, the same for, uh, you know, for our team in Hong Kong. So anything that you've noticed in the hiring um, side of the business, either like in Hong Kong or in, in North America, any differences? Yeah. You know, there are regional differences in terms of ability to hire. Like I think it's harder to hire, you know, technical devs in Boulder, you know, it's a smaller community. Um, so, uh, and there's, there, there's a decent amount of movement between companies. So, um, you know, the ability to have, uh, teams in different places working on uh, different things, especially on the technical side, is not super helpful. There's of cost, you know, of course the the cost differences, and then you know there are just even um, you know Hong Kong's going through just a lot of turbulence right now, and um, you know our team is in a uh, a really good spot, but you know they've had to to think about how to travel to work, how to travel to and from Hong Kong to China. Um, those are all things that are, you know, um, that are different. Um, you know, even, you know, the team in New York, um, you know, their commutes are are longer and, um, you know, we're actually looking at a different spot uh, for Mm -hmm. them. Um, yeah, we had a, we had a member at our CO Alliance event. They were talking about one of their investors was a Chinese company and they were really worried about the market, even finding out that they had Chinese investors. Now there's such a a strange kind of. U.S.-China um, rift happening at times. Um, if you were to, to, to kind of link back to some of your earliest learnings that, that you took in business, things that you probably, um, you know, have leveraged, what are some of the big things that you learned early on that you still do today? Um, I, I, you know, for me, it was interesting because I made this career switch from the military over to, um, you know, to the corporate world and sorry about that. Um, some of the real early lessons for me were around just kind of understanding the financial underpinnings of a business and, you know, how important things like gross margin and operating profit are. You, you tend to see a lot of young startups focus on revenue growth and they forget about um, that the fact that the enduring companies that stay around for a while really um, tend to focus there. And I think, you know, in light of some of these recent events where you look at like a WeWork who's, you know, operating profit, I know they're growing pretty quickly, but you know, I think gross margins were 20, 20% or so. Um, you know, some of those real important, you know, financial underpinnings, um, 
you, you learn those early, you take those throughout your career and apply them. Um, you know, I think the, uh, you know, hiring great teams um, and being able to de delegate we talked about. Uh, I think the other thing is the importance around, um, you know, startups have a couple of key advantages, you know, one being focus and two being their ability to move fast. And, um, you know, we've always tried to keep that in mind, um, you know, whether it's in our hiring process. If somebody kind of comes in and meets with us and we have a great meeting, we, they don't walk out of our building wondering if, you know, I wonder if I'll get that, you know, job. I'm wondering if they, we tell them, we say, mm -hmm. hey, you did a great job. We're really interested. We're going to follow up with you quickly. Um, and we try to apply that, you know, all throughout the company, whether it's in our sales process or product development. Yeah, that's smart. If you don't do that, somebody else is going to grab them in this day and age too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, well, final, final question, if we were to link back to you as a kind of 22 year old, you're, you're just kind of starting out in your career. What word of advice would you give yourself back then that now you know to be true, but you wish you'd known what you were just getting going? I'd, I'd probably tell myself to slow down a little bit. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I felt like this incredible, um, you know, whether it was my background or just sort of upbringing, like an incredible need to like establish myself. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, at times that, that paid a price, you know, you, you have this, you know, work-life balance. And when you're 22, it's, it's all work and it's, there's not enough uh, life balance in there. And I think I, I, you know, I paid the price for that. Um, you know, and you want to get you, yourself to this level of professional security, whether it's, you know, economic or personal. Um, and, um, you know, that, that would be one thing. And as I talked to like 22 year olds, like, you know, if they're, if they're college grads and they're looking for their, their next, you know, what they're going to do, I always, you know, give them like some really simple advice that um, a, a mentor had given me when I was pretty young. And it was like, you know, number one, uh, do what you want to do, right? And that sounds really stupid, but, um, or at least have put yourself on the path of doing what you want to do. Um, don't just take the job because you, you need the money. Um, you know, uh, really try to at least, uh, focus yourself on doing what you want to do. And then number two is, uh, you know, go where you want to go. Um, and you know, I've had people that have kind of come in and they're, they're interviewing for a role that they really don't want um, and they break that rule or they're um, they don't really want to be um, in, a, in a particular location. And you're saying, Hey, you're breaking the, the two most fundamental rules totally. that are out there. Yeah. So um, I tend to give that advice. And the last piece of advice, and I really um, paid heed to this, um, but I don't see enough, um, you know, young 22 year olds doing this is to find great mentors, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we had a wonderful um, young girl that was taking a gap year and watching our kids and she was considering careers and she said, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, getting into the FAA and my wife works for the FAA. And I said, you know what, miss, my wife will take you to work and you could spend some time and at least consider it. Um, 
And then she, you know, thought she might want a career in medicine. So we, we put her in touch with a, um, a great um, doctor that she could learn some things from. It seems like we've lost a little bit, you know, of that yeah. apprenticeship. Apprenticeship. Yeah. You know, my, my dad was a, as a plumber was, a, you know, he, he was an apprenticeship. And I even think when I was at West Point, I was like, I learned about this, the art of warfare, but some of our, you know, unfortunately they learn lessons at a place like West Point when you, you start losing a lot of your, your graduates on the battlefield is that bring that apprenticeship back into, um, uh, you know, into the workplace and into, um, it's just so valuable. And um, it's, I think even, you know, my kids right now, my, my son's getting into that 16 year old thinking about what he wants to do. And, um, you know, dad and mom talk to him all the time and he hears, you know, he, he listens and, but if he were to talk to you about business, he would come away with like a really, you know, it, it would impact him in a different way than mom yeah. and dad. So, well, it's so interesting that I, I agree by the way on the mentoring, it's, it's interesting that I think anyone who's successful has been helped by someone else and we're naturally bent to try to give that help, you know, in, in kind of paying it forward now. So it's often if you just reach out, especially if you reach out for some specific questions, like, Hey, I just want to pick your brain about these three things. People are very apt to say yes. Yeah. It's, it's a, especially around career choices because you have so much invested there and um, it's uh, you're starting to see um, colleges do a better job with that. Um, but um, I think we got a long way to go. That's cool. Jim Booth, the COO for Sphero. Thank you very much for sharing with us on the Second and Grand podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.